I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we are all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shout match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. Well, come on, if you love Jesus, somebody put your hands together this morning. Come on. And if you, if you love dads, come on. Can you give it up for all the dads in the room, online, both campuses? Come on, we love you, dads. Hey, you're here on a good Sunday. It is Father's Day, but we're continuing a conversation on the book of Philippians. And so we are intentionally looking at all four chapters within the book of Philippians. And I, I hope that... You have enjoyed the series as much as I've enjoyed teaching the series. It's been a great couple of weeks, and if you missed any of the previous weeks, you can jump back online and you can take a listen to that. But I want to give you a fast recap because this way we're all on the same page, and I won't re-preach weeks one and two, but I do want to give you a quick recap of the book of Philippians. So Paul, the Apostle Paul is a missionary, but he's also a church planter, and he's writing the letter to the church at Philippi that he planted probably about a decade or so prior to this letter. So they're about 10 to 12 years old, the church is. Paul is now in a Roman prison, which there's great irony in that because he's writing one of the most positive books of the Bible during one of the darkest seasons of his life. And he starts off in Philippians chapter one and he says, I thank my God. And I think that's so interesting that even in the midst of difficulty, Paul still chooses joy. And that idea of joy really is, at least in my opinion, the central theme to this entire letter. But more than that, this idea of joy tends to be Paul's, you know, personal kind of mantra for living. It's his personal life's mission statement as well. Let me summarize it by saying this. If you're taking notes, write this thought down. I've shared this with you each week. But Paul says that you and I, we can have joy no matter what. And really, if you break this down into two different thoughts, both, both are heavy. First of all, that there, there is a joy that surpasses everything that we're up against and that joy is sustained regardless of what we face. And Paul says, look, I'm in this prison. I'm chained to a Roman soldier. I'm awaiting to be executed. And if I can have joy, if I can choose joy in the middle of my mess, then here we are a couple thousand years later. And the Apostle Paul and, and, and then myself personally, we're not making light of whatever it is you're walking through. But if Paul can choose joy in the middle of his mess, I just believe you and I, we can choose joy in the middle of our mess too, you know? And that doesn't take away the pain or the hurt or the challenge that you're faced with, but it does mean 
that you don't have to take up residence there. You don't have to move in there. You, you, you can relocate to a, a supernatural place. It's a place of joy. It's joy unspeakable and full of glory. And Paul says, so regardless of what you see in the natural and regardless of those circumstances, regardless of the diagnosis, regardless of, of the job that you have that you don't really love, regardless of the car problems, come on, somebody just testify, right? Regar regard <laughs> regardless of the sickness, regardless of the financial pressure, which just about all of us feel, Paul says, regardless of all of those extenuating circumstances, you, you can have joy. And I told you the irony again is that he's writing from a place of prison. And if he's chained up, waiting to be cru crucified, literally executed, and he can choose joy, I just feel like you and I, we can choose joy as well. So if you missed any of the previous two weeks, I want you to get caught up with us. It's, it's worth a listen. It's worth a share. The next time you're on the treadmill, just put that thing on and listen. Let the Lord speak to your heart. So today, we're going to go to chapter three. And just like last Sunday, I'm going to do my best in the 40 minutes that I've got to share with you every single verse in chapter three, all 237, ver I'm just kidding. There's not that many. Some of you are like, I ain't coming to this church again. Now it's about 21 verses. I'm going to try to give you all of these verses and I hope that's okay with you that we'll use the Bible today since this is a church and all, you know, I thought that's important to do. So we're going to walk through all of these and I want you to see how we start. So Philippians chapter three, if you got your scripture or if you use your smartphone as a Bible, flip there with me. Paul says this, he says, further, or depending on what translation you read, it might say, finally. Now, what's comical about that to me is, is that he's saying finally, but there's one more chapter. Isn't it like any good preacher to tell you they're going to close, but they're really not closing? Come on now. So he's like, hey, finally or further, my brothers and sisters. And then he says this, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And here's what I'd like us to do at both campuses on the count of three. I want us to read these four words together. Can we do that? One, two, three. Rejoice in the Lord. This time, say it like you mean it. Can you do that? One, two, three. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, I learned this in preparation of today. That this phrase, this four-word phrase, is the equivalent to the Old Testament exclamation, Hallelujah. Isn't that neat? So what Paul is saying in the middle of his prison cell, in the middle of waiting to go on trial to potentially be executed, Paul says, hallelujah. He says, look, because hallelujah is the highest praise. Come on, help me preach. And he says, he says even, even in the mess that I'm in, I can raise a hallelujah. In spite of what I see, I know that God is working on my behalf. And church, that'll preach too. No matter what you're going through, there is a God that is behind the scenes working. So even in a moment of uncertainty, you can lift your hands, you can lift your voice, and you can say hallelujah. Come on now. Let, let's try it together. Come on, it's one big, one big choir. Can we say that word hallelujah? One, two, three. Hallelujah. Come on, if anybody's walking through something, can you let your praise be louder than your problem? One, two, three. Hallelujah. Yeah, he says hallelujah. And that's important because he's, he's identifying the reality of choosing joy no matter what. And Paul says it like this. Paul says in Galatians chapter five that joy is a spiritual fruit. That when we are in Christ, then we demonstrate the fruits 
of the Spirit. Come on, let me say it like this. It's the evidence to back up our claim that we are Christians. So when, when life is unfair, and how many of you know life can be unfair? When life is difficult, can you testify to that? Life can just be difficult. That, that we operate with a different mindset. We operate with a different perspective when we're Christians. And so Paul writes out the fruits of the Spirit, and he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So Paul identifies joy or rejoicing in the Lord as one of the spiritual fruits. But watch this. Joy is not just a fruit. Joy is a weapon. So joy isn't just a spiritual fruit, but joy is a spiritual force. And there's nothing that frustrates the enemy anymore than when you're walking through trouble, when you're walking through difficulty, when you're walking through your own hell, and you lift your hands and say, you know what? Hallelujah anyway. Come on. I wish I had a couple hundred people that would testify to the fact that when life gets tough, you can still lift your voice and say, hallelujah. Come on, one more time. Do it with me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I love it. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he says this. He says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you over and over again. He says, as a matter of fact, the redundancy is actually a safeguard for you. And to me, this is how, this is how I interpret this for my own personal life is that Paul's not saying that we'll never go deep theologically. He's not saying that we'll go below the surface, but what Paul is saying is, is that what does it matter if we can't get the basics right? He says, so let, let me give you the basics of faith over and over and over again, because what good is it to be a smart Christian that continues to make dumb decisions? Oh, come on, help me out now. So, so Paul's saying, I'm okay with putting on repeat the basics of Christianity because you got to lock into these things. Now, let me tell you something a little personal here. I am highly, right now in this season of my life, I am highly addicted to golf. That's true. I'm not making that up. Like, I'm highly addicted to golf. And I am the best-looking 112-stroke golfer on any golf course in America. From head to toe, I look like I know exactly what I'm doing. But I don't. And this is going to sound funny to you, but it's the honest truth. The other day I was playing and I told the Lord, why do I love this game so much? Yet you made me so bad. You know, I love it so much that I've even in recent months taken personal golf lessons to learn how to get better. The challenge with golf is, is that you don't compete against anyone else. You compete against you. And I have found out I am my own worst enemy. Now, whenever I've taken these professional golf lessons, or even when I play with people who are better than I am, because I can't find anybody worse than me, okay, but I try to play with people that are better than me because it elevates my game. And what's interesting is that from the professional golf pro's instruction to the person that has been playing golf for a while and they're a gifted golfer, they say the same thing over and over and over about my game and it's all the basics so I hit a ball and it's a slice what did I do keep your head down I hit a ball and it's a hook what did I do slow your tempo okay I missed the putt what did I do your grip was wrong 
Your setup is wrong. After a while, I'm like, am I doing anything right? You know, but the point is this, is that to get the basics of anything in life, you have to repeat them. And Paul says, I'm okay with repeating all of this because you need to get back to the basics of your faith. Come on, that'll preach, won't it? Now, that's the first couple of, of, of verses. That's the first verse there. The remainder of the chapter can be broken down into four thoughts. And I'm going to do my best to give you all four of these thoughts with every verse in Philippians chapter 3. You're going to see Paul's warning. And then he moves to his testimony. And then Paul transitions to his goal. And I'm, I'm going to sit heavy on, on that third area. And then Paul closes out all of this particular chapter with a powerful reminder, and, and I'll finish it with a question that I think is going to probably have some of us wrestling in our own faith. And, and it starts with this. Paul gives us a warning. And what's interesting about this warning is that in the first two chapters, Paul's tone is very contagious. Paul's tone is very much joy-filled, but he takes a hard shift here, and he says this. Watch out for the dogs. And then he says, it's a warning. He says, watch out for the evildoers. And then he says this line. He says, watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. Now, who is he talking about? And why is he warning the church at Philippi about these individuals? I mean, who, who's he calling a dog? Who's he calling evil? Who's he calling a mutilator of the flesh? I'm so glad you asked. See, Paul was a gifted communicator. And Paul would go from city to city, from town to town, and he would preach the gospel. And not only would he preach the gospel, but he would also plant life-giving churches. But Paul, just like, hear me, just like anybody that's doing something for God, he too had haters. Come on, help me out for a minute. So when you got critics and you got haters, just rest assured that you're in good company. Because Paul had them too. And Paul's critics were the Judaizers. These were religious Jews that followed Paul everywhere that Paul went. And so Paul would preach a message and then the Judaizers would show up in the same city and they would preach a message that was not consistent with the message that Paul was sharing, which by the way, the message of Paul is the gospel. So are you with me? If you're with me, just kind of nod at me, okay? Some of you are looking like a cow looking at a new gate. Hang in there for a second. So this was Paul's sermon. And Paul always had three points to his sermon. Paul preached that it is by grace, through faith, that you and I receive salvation. So Paul would say, God knew that you and I, we would need a savior. That we would need someone to rescue us because we could not rescue ourselves. And he says that God lowered himself in the form of humanity. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be crucified on a cross. And if you believe that, so by grace, through faith, we experience salvation. Well, the religious uh, Judaizers didn't agree with this. Because in their mind, they thought, how is it possible that such a holy God, that a powerful God, that an all-knowing, all-encompassing God would provide salvation for free. That you and I wouldn't have to do anything. 
And they said, it's not possible. So they, they balked at the idea that God would offer salvation for free. And they were determined to share the gospel that said, in order to truly be saved, you have to do something. You've got to do some type of work. So their message was counter to Paul's. And they would say, no, no, no. It is grace plus works through faith. And that's what brings salvation. So here's what they said. Let me summarize all of this. All right. So the Judaizers would say salvation is not just merely believing in Jesus. They preach the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law said that every man, every male had to be circumcised. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Dads, could you imagine attending a church like that today? Hey, welcome to church. Happy Father's Day to you. On your way out today, we've got a free gift for you and your family. We've got a photo booth. And by the way, if you've not yet been circumcised, don't go to the VIP experience. Go to the NIP experience. Come on, that's funny. I don't care who you are. If you need a little help, ask your neighbor, all right? And they, and they declared that in order to be saved, that you had to obey the Old Testament law, which was that of being circumcised. So they would say, believe in the law, get circumcised, believe in Jesus, and then you've earned the title of Christian. But Paul, Paul said, that, that's, that, that's just, that's heresy. As a matter of fact, he talked about the Judaizers in Galatians and, and referencing them. He said this in Galatians 2.21. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. Can we just take a minute and say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace? He says, I don't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Do you see that? And then, and then he doubles down in Ephesians 2.8. He says, it is by grace you have been saved <clears throat> through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is a free gift of God. It is not by works. He says it's not by works so that no one could boast. So Paul says, look, don't believe them. Don't listen to them. Don't, don't buy anything to, that they're saying. And this is what Paul says. He says, because salvation in Jesus cannot be obtained by anything external. He says, salvation in Jesus cannot be obtained by anything on the outside. He says, salvation is all about what God does on the inside. Now watch this. What God does on the outside should always be on, on the inside, should always be on display on the outside. But it's not the outside that fixes the inside. It's the inside that fixes the outside. Come on now, that's a tongue twister, but I made it work. Now let me pause here before we move on, because you need to know this, because there's a lot of you that are visiting uh, this church at either one of our campuses on Father's Day weekend. And I'm always very careful when I talk about other ministries and pastors and churches because God didn't call me to lead those. But I, I do want to tell you that there are still dogs out there. There's still dogs out there. And, and they're, they're dressed up like sheep standing behind pulpits all across America. But they're really wolves. They're dogs. And they're not preaching the infallible word of God, the truth of God's word. Can I just tell you that I'm not saying that I've got it all figured out and I'm perfect, but you and I, we do not have time for my own self-interpretation of scripture. I'm not trying to build my own platform or my own kingdom. We will preach grace 
through faith that gets us saved. Come on now, help me out for a second. And these dogs will try to manipulate you. These dogs will try to trick you. Come on. As a matter of fact, your Bible says that in the last days, you have to watch out for false teachings because they're floating around. So if you're just visiting this church and you call another church your home church, you better be sure that they're preaching the Bible. Come on. They better be preaching the Bible because it's only this book that will set us free. I wish I had some Christians that would help your pastor preach. Come on now. And Paul says this, he says, you, you think it's the circumcision that makes us saved? He says, listen, he says, we are the circumcision. He says, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus. Come on, isn't that good? And who put no confidence in the flesh. Sometimes I feel like I might be too transparent, but I'm going to be honest with you. I have no confidence in my flesh because I am a sinner saved by grace. Come on, anybody with me? It's what the Bible says, that it is pride that comes before the fall. Because when you put confidence in you, you'll always let you down. But when you put confidence in a God, come on, who is greater than all of that, then you can rest assured that he'll give you the power to sustain whatever it is that life throws at you. All right, I got to move. So you saw Paul's warning. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the, the evildoers. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. He said, they're telling you that you've got to get circumcised to get saved. He says, that's nonsense. He says, it's by grace, through faith. And then, and I love this. And then Paul, in chapter 3, shares his testimony. And this is, this is basically what he's saying here in chapter 3. He says, if any of you religious folks, if any of you Judaizers, Let's say it in a way that makes sense to you and I. If any of you churchgoers, you, you think you've got a resume and religious accomplishments listed on that resume that'll get you into heaven. He said, when you compare that to mine, he says, I have more. Now, let me pause there and I'll, I'll tell you why he says that. This is what he says in the next verse. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence... If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Do you see that? And what Paul is about to do in verses 5 and 6 is he's going to list all of these religious accomplishments that he's ever, that he, that he, he's ever achieved. Okay? He's going to list all of the things that he accomplished before he personally knew Jesus Christ. And the list just simply proves that he was far more religious that he was far more committed to obeying the Old Testament law than all of his critics that claim to have it all figured out and have it all together. Now, before you see it, you're going to think, man, this Paul guy's really arrogant. This Paul guy really is bragging about all of the things that he's accomplished. But if you'll give me a few minutes and if you read the, the chapter, you'll see that he's actually doing the exact opposite. Here's what he says. Look at it. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He said, I had godly parents, and the godly parents, they, 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 they followed the law, and they had me circumcised according to the law. He said, I come from the people of Israel. He says, I, my lineage is a part of God's chosen people. He says, I come from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin was one of the bigger and most prominent tribes in all of Israel. Then he says what? He says, I'm a Hebrew 
of Hebrews. He says, I'm 100% purebred Hebrew. There is no other trace of race within my bloodline. And then he says this, in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the most religious sect in the Jewish culture at that time. And they knew the Old Testament forward and backward. And not only did they know it, but they prided themselves on their ability to obey the law perfectly. And he says, in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. And then he says this, as for zeal, you want to talk about passion? He says, I persecuted the church. He said, I thought that all of these Christians that were claiming that Jesus was the son of God, that they were really blaspheming God. So I persecuted the church. He says this, he says, and as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Meaning, I obeyed it exactly how it was written. And any time that I messed up, I made sure to offer the proper sacrifice. Either Paul would offer a bull or a lamb or a pigeon or a goat as a sacrifice to make atonement for the sin. Do you see that? So Paul is, is building his testimony. He says, you think you're religious and you got it all figured out? Listen to me. Hang in there because I'm going somewhere, I promise you. All right? And then he says, he says let me tell you what life is really about. He says, let, let me give you my, my goal. And I want you to see this shift in verse number seven. And I, I, I don't, I'm not taking it out of context, but I really believe that in verse number seven, Paul, as he writes, I can almost see it in my mind's eye, that he's reminiscing on his supernatural encounter on the road to Damascus. Because on this road to Damascus, he met Jesus and Jesus met him. Come on. And so in verse number seven, he starts to talk about his goal in life. And he uses two accounting words. And that's important. I think he used the accounting words because Paul was an entrepreneur. He was a business owner. He was a tent maker. And so he knew all about business and finance and accounting and assets and liabilities. And this is what he says. So he says, I just gave you all, all of my accomplishments, all of the religious things that I did that I thought would get me into heaven. And he says, but these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of who? Because of Christ. I'm a visual learner. Let me show it to you. He says, I thought all of these assets is what would give me a one-way ticket to heaven. He said, so, so I leaned on my family heritage. I, I puffed out my chest about my race and being part of the tribe of Benjamin. He said, I walked around arrogantly as a Pharisee and the fact that I, if you want to talk about righteousness, that, that, that I lived a righteous life. He said, but when I met Jesus, come on church. He said, but when I met Jesus, I looked at all of the things that I had accomplished and realized that I've got to move them from this column over to that column. That all of the assets, all of my resume that I thought I should be proud of actually then became a liability. And here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, if I start to trust in the external things of this world, come on now. He says, if I trust in them more than I trust in God, he said, then all of these things are going to be the very thing that actually keeps me out of heaven. He said, if I, if I lean on earthly 
advancement. And I lean on earthly accomplishments. He said, the more I lean on them, the less I lean on Jesus. And the more I lean on them, the more likely I'll never inherit heaven. Here's what he says. He says, more than that. So these Judaizers again, they're saying, hey, you got an A, B, C, D, E. He said, I know all about A, B, C, D, E. He said, I've been there, done that, and bought the T-shirt, baby. He said, but more than all of that, he said, I regard all things as what? Liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do do you see that? He says, for for whom I have suffered the loss of all things indeed. And then he said, I regard them as horse manure. And, And let me tell you, I just churched it up from what he really said. He said, he said, He said, all of that is horse dung. He says, it means nothing. He says, what are you going to stand before God on your day of judgment and taunt your accomplishments? What what are you you going to do? You're going to lean on all of the things that you accomplished on this earth? He says, listen, he says, there's only one asset. And the one asset, the only asset that matters is that there is intimacy with Christ. Come on. All right, here's, here's the point. Here's the point. Because some of you, you got Cracker Barrel on the brain. I can tell. He says, no, no amount of earthly success and, and no amount of religious accomplishments will ever replace intimacy with Jesus. Let me say it like this. And, and hear my heart, not just what I'm saying. You can make six figures. And you can give 90% of that income to the church. You, you, you can live in the nicest house and open it up to people that don't have a home. You can turn it into your own homeless bed and breakfast and label it or list it under, this is what I'm doing for Jesus. You can serve the church. You can walk around, speak in tongues. You can memorize the Bible from cover to cover. Okay, you can go to seminary school and get filled with all kinds of deep theological intellect so that you can exegete the scripture. You can obtain every degree that you need to obtain. But if you don't know Jesus, come on, if you do not know Jesus, none of that matters because no earthly success, no religious accomplishment can ever replace a true, genuine, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Come on. So Paul says, whatever, and he's talking to us and I feel the Holy Spirit. He says, whatever you think is important in life, none of it matters. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? He says, yeah, He says, stop going through the motions. Stop just going through the motions. He says, listen, going to church doesn't make you any more a Christian than standing in a garage makes you a car. Let that sink in. He says, you just go through the motions. He says, "All, all of that, all of that is horse manure. He says, what really matters is intimacy with God. And then beginning in verse 10, and I'm so glad he does this. He lays out for us exactly what it looks like 
to be in that personal relationship with Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse number 10 says this. This is Paul. He says, my aim, my goal, I just want to know him. Oh, man, that moves my spirit because that is my prayer. Can I tell you that I never ask God to be a preacher? I never ask God to be a pastor. I'm thankful that I get to do it. It's the greatest, it is the greatest honor of my life. But when I got saved, I got saved with one desire. I want to know you. I, want, I just want to know you. Man, when I, when I first got saved, I was so radical for Jesus. Do you remember those days? Come on, I remember walking into Walmart one time and grabbing the speaker and said, attention Walmart shoppers. Jesus loves you and you can meet him on aisle five. You know what I'm talking about? When I got saved, I had one goal and it was to know Jesus. And Paul says, uh, he, this is what he says. He says, I, I want to know the person of Jesus. He says, I don't just want to know about him. I, I don't just want to read about him. I don't want to just be able to talk in a way that makes everybody think that I know him. Come on. And let's be honest. Christians are really good at that, aren't they? They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And in the Christian community, we've got our own language, our own Christianese that we use so that we can show others, hey, I, I know, you don't know him. You know of him. Because ladies and gentlemen, talk is cheap. And you grew up on this the same way that I did, but your actions always speak louder than your words. And Paul says, I don't just want to talk the talk, but I want to know him. He says, I, I don't just want to come here and sing songs about him. I want to sing songs because I know him. Out of the overflow of that relationship with him, I can lift my hands and say, you know what? Hallelujah. Rejoice in the Lord. He says, I don't want to just listen to somebody preach. Hear me. It's no wonder so many people don't get anything out of a sermon. Because there's no intimacy with Jesus. And Paul says, my aim is to know him. I want to, I want to know the person of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but I don't just want to know him. But I, I want to experience his power. L listen to me. It was Paul who said, it's the same power that raised Jesus up from the grave that lives on the inside of you. And Paul says this. Paul says, it's one thing to know the person of Jesus, but it's something entirely different to experience the power of his resurrection. Come on, church. And Paul says, I want to experience a power that raised Jesus up from the grave. Because if that power can raise Jesus up from the grave, then that same power can raise me up from my dead life too. Come on now. Paul says, I want, I want the power. I want to experience power so that I can resist sin and the power to resist temptation and the power to resist addiction. Let me tell you, whatever bondage you're in today, if you just say, I want to experience power, God will set you free. Come on, church. And Paul says, I want to experience the power. God, Paul says, God, if you can give me the power to overcome struggles, listen to me. You don't have to be the victor. You get to be the victor. You get victory in Jesus. Jesus, the power. He says, if you can give me power to overcome generational curses that have been upon my family for decades, I want that kind of power. Come on, anybody with me? Paul, Paul says, I want power. I want power. And let me tell you, that's me. I want the kind of power that can make a white man dance. Come on now. I, I, I don't want to go to a church where they lack power. 
No, I want to I be a part of a church where you experience the power of the resurrection. You should, you should not be coming and leaving the same way you came. You, you should be coming and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection power of Jesus, and you ought to walk out of this place different than when you walked in. I need 300 people in this room that can testify that there is a power greater than you and I know of, but we can have that power. Come on. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit here till you shout. It is a it is a power that lets me lift my head in the middle of difficulty. It is a. It is a power that lets me put one foot in front of the other to keep on going. It is a power that looks the enemy dead in the eye and says, you should have killed me when you had your chance. But I'm greater now. I'm stronger now. Because I've got power. Come on, church. Yeah. Hey. I've got people online and people sitting here thinking, what is going on? I'm going to tell you what's going on. You can't put your finger in a light socket and not feel power. And you can't know Jesus and not feel power. And Jesus said, I want to give you power, come on, to raise the dead back to life. I want to give you power so that the blind can see, the mute can hear. I'm going to give you a power because the world says that your marriage won't make it, but the power says it can. Come on. The doctor says your body won't live, but the power says you'll live. The banker says they're going to take your house and your car, but the power says, come on now. And Paul says, I want that power. Woo. Come on. He says, I want to experience the power of the resurrection. Oh, Jesus. I am sweating now, baby. Can I tell listen to me. I don't, I don't want to just come in and sing a few songs and hear somebody preach to me, even if he's got a fly jacket on on Father's Day. I don't want all that. No, I want power. Because when I leave here, there's a real enemy. And the Bible says in John 10, 10, that he's seeking whom he may devour. But can we just take a moment and just remind the enemy that he can't touch this? Come on now. Listen, I'm going to take a breath. You give Jesus praise. Come on. Come on, lift up a voice to Jesus. Come on. I got to move. Oh, man. Same, same verse. Same verse. He says, to share in his sufferings and to be like him in death. Okay, let's be honest. One and two I was good with. Like, I want to know the person. And I, I want the power. I'll shout on that. But now, but now Paul is saying, I don't just want to know the person. I don't just want to experience the power of the resurrection. He says, I, I want to participate in his pain. Well, when's the last time you said, Lord, what, whatever. I want, I want to know you so much that if I have to walk the same walk that you did, in order to experience how much you love me, then let me participate in pain. Here's what we do. Can I be honest? Even if you said no, I was going to be honest. Whenever pain hits our lives, and I can't talk for you, I'll just talk for me. What's the first thing that JC does? When suffering comes, 
When difficulty comes, what's the first thing that I tend to do? Because I'm human. Here's what I do. I present my religious resume. Well, I go to church. I pay my tithe. I, I can't tell you how many times I've used this one. I'm a pastor. And this is what the Lord says. And he said it over my life, and I think he would say it over yours. He cares far more about our character than he does our comfort. And he cares far more about our holiness than he does our happiness. Now, not all pain is from God. Let's not put all the blame there. But so many people, they walk out of church and they leave Jesus when trouble comes, when pain comes. What if Jesus did that in the garden? It was Jesus that said, because nobody, nobody, come on, nobody signs up for pain. And Jesus said, Lord, if, if, you could, if you could take this cup from me. And then he said, but not my will, your will be done. And I just wonder, are you there where you would say, Lord, I want to know the person. I want to experience the power, but I also, I'm ready to participate in pain. If you go back to last Sunday, and I won't re-preach it to you because I'm running out of time. But going through suffering and pain is how we rid ourselves of selfish ambition, vain conceit, and a lack of humility. It strips the pride. And, and going through pain, at, and this sounds silly, but as painful as it is, doesn't that somehow bring us closer to God if we allow it? Because it's, in, it's in, listen, it, it's easy when life's good to say, hallelujah. Oh, God, you're faithful. God, you're good. But when life's not fair, Maybe God is using what, listen to me, maybe God's using whatever painful situation you're walking through because he's working on you and he's working in you and he's making you more like him. Come on. Oh, I got to hurry. He, he goes on. He says, not that I've already attained this. He says, that is, I've not already been perfected. He said, but I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Verse 13, he says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I, I've not achieved it. He says, but I, but I do focus on, on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. And I wish I, wish I had time to preach that, but I'm only going to say this. If you don't get anything out of this message, why don't you lean in on this verse right here? Some of you, you've been buried by decades of yesterday's pain and problem, and God wants you to move on from yesterday and look forward to what's ahead. Come on. There is victory ahead. Come on, church. Jesus is coming back. That's good news. Forgetting the past, looking forward to what is ahead. And then he says this. He says, so I press on. I press on. To reach the end of the race. Come on, all of us. We've got our own race to run. Dads, this is the best Father's Day sermon I can give to you because you're competitive like me. You're in a race. And just like my golf game is against myself, this race is between you and the enemy too. But you've got to press on. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Paul says this. Paul says, I'm going to press on. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to let a bad day, week, month, or year ruin me or define me. He says, I'm going, I'm going to press, to press on. 
don't give up church. We've got this race that we're running and Paul says, press on. Okay, I gotta move because I'm gonna show you his, his uh, promise at the end, his reminder at the end. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree, God will help you figure it out. I like that, huh? I need to start saying that at the end of every message. If you disagree, get with Jesus. He says, but we must hold on to the what? Both campuses. Let me say this to you. You may not be who you want to be, but thank God you're not who you used to be. Hey, Paul says, I, I've not reached perfection. He said, but I, I am a work in progress. By a show of hands, anybody a work in progress? Come on. If you, if you saw a visual of my life, you would see construction signs around me because I'm always a work in progress. But I'm glad I'm not who I used to be. I've got a long way to go, but I've come a far long way too, baby. Come on, church. And he says, hold on to the progress that we've made. And then he says this, brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. Progress and pattern. He says, and learn from those who follow our example. This is the fifth one. He says, I'm a work in progress, but I'm laying out the pattern. He says, I'm not perfect. And none of us will ever be perfect until we get to heaven and we get that perfected, glorified body. He says, I'm a work in progress, but I'm giving you a pattern. I'm giving you a pattern. Do you see that? Do you love chapter three? Okay, I'm done with this last one. The warning, the testimony, the goal. And then he says this. And this, man, it, it just gets my heart so deeply. He says, I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many people whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that grips me. I'm so thankful for grace and the faith and for salvation, but I don't ever want to be an enemy of the cross of Jesus. And then he says this in verse 19, he says, they're headed for destruction. Their God, lowercase g, is their appetite. They brag on shameful things. He says, they think only about this life here on earth. And look at verse 20, he says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our savior. Anybody glad Jesus is coming back? And watch, this is the reminder of the promise of God. And he says, he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into a glorious body like his own using the same power. I should have highlighted that word in yellow. Using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. And every week, I try to close with a challenging question before you leave. And there's so much rich con you just You just went through all 21 verses in chapter 3. There's so much there, but I keep wrestling in my spirit with those last few verses. And I, I know you got lunch plans, and I'm not going to keep you. As a matter of fact, in 49 seconds, I'm walking off this platform. And you're going to go to lunch. You're going to do a barbecue. or Kimberly's going to wait on me, hands and feet all day. And I might play a little golf, who knows? But before you and I leave, we need to make sure we know the answer to this question. Am I an enemy of the cross? Or am I a citizen of heaven? And watch this, this is, this is hard truth. 
If you don't know Jesus, you're playing on the wrong team. If you don't know Jesus, you're playing on the wrong team. But Jesus says, all you have to do is believe because I paid it all on the cross at Calvary. And in one moment, one moment, you can say yes to Jesus and no to the world and your zip code and your address changes. Come on, can we just love on the Lord one time? Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed. But please, if you got two minutes, hang in there with me before you leave. I want you to chew on this question. Am I an enemy of the cross or am I a citizen of heaven?